0: Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, Navigating the New Normal, presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly Leaders Forum addresses vital issues facing society and technology, real estate and medicine, technology and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Powell. I'm the Executive Director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501C3, National American Charitable Organization, based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a motto of coexistence as it serves one million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission and this free public affairs program with a donation of any amount. Visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center online and donate at afrmc.org. Join us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. We depend on you, our audience's support to help the hospital in Israel. So thank you if you can contribute any amount. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. Today's Global Connections topic is Ukraine. How will this war end? Thank you to our very special guests. Ambassador William B. Taylor, Vice President, Europe and Russia at the United States Institute of Peace. Dr. Corey Shackey, Senior Fellow and Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And David Ignatius, columnist and Associate Editor at the Washington Post. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Just about a year ago, Russia
1: expanded its war in Ukraine. It launched an invasion intending to seize the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. Eight years earlier, Russia had seized and the next Crimea, the strategically valuable peninsula that juts into the Black Sea. It had also intervened uh, and occupied part of Eastern Ukraine, the Donbas region. But the invasion of February, 2022, was a substantially bigger operation, and many of us wondered, did Ukraine have the resources to hold the Russians at bay for a few weeks? Well, a year later, all parties to the war in Ukraine have surprised us. The Ukrainians, by their valor on the battlefield, their unity and their successes, the United States and NATO and other allies for their solidarity and support of Ukraine, and Russia by the sheer depth of its unexpected military incompetence. So how might the war in Ukraine end with Ukrainian territorial gains that force a Russian withdrawal or with uh, Russia's thousands of fresh troops reversing their losses or Russia threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons? Will it end with a a diplomatic settlement that leaves parts of Ukraine still under Russian control? Of course, we don't know the answers to these questions, but... We've asked a very excellent panel to tell us what they think and what role they think the U.S. should play in all this. I'll interview them first, and then we'll have an hour of discussion and questions and answers. Uh, If you are watching us live, you can contribute a question by using the Q&A button on the bottom of your screen. Our first panelist is David Ignatius. Uh, He is an opinion columnist and associate editor uh, for the Washington Post. When I first met him about a thousand years ago, uh, he was a Wall Street Journal reporter in Washington, and he went on to be that paper's Middle East correspondent and diplomatic correspondent. Uh, He has been at the Washington Post since 1986, and between senior editing jobs and columns, he has managed to write uh, 10 spy novels, including Body of Lies, which was made into a good movie. David, welcome, it's good to see you.
2: Good to see you, Robert, as always.
1: Uh, You were in Ukraine not too long ago. uh, From what you saw and heard there, Uh, tell us what the situation is now. Is either side gaining or losing significant amounts of territory?
2: I was in Ukraine in December, uh, had been there in October and and earlier. Um, As of December, I would have described, the war as a, as a brutal stalemate, uh, winter obviously was setting in, uh, the uh, combat continued, uh, especially in the eastern area of the Donbas with a World War I kind of trench warfare, uh, bitterly contested, but uh not much advance on either side um this followed a, a fall of significant ukrainian gains mm-hmm. uh russians on the on their on their back foot we may now be entering a slightly different phase uh the, the russians do continue uh th- through relentless uh use of artillery waves of of assault troops in this uh, eastern region especially around the town of bakhmut Uh, to make advances, Uh, and just visiting with people in the White House yesterday, I heard talk of the possibility that that Ukrainian line in Bakhmut may may break. Mm. Um, This shouldn't be confused with a strategic victory. Uh, The the, the battle for Bakhmut, let alone this part of Donetsk, is is not uh, an existential one, I don't think, for Mm. Ukraine, but it will be a psychological victory. Um, just finally, in addition to the Russian offensive that seems to have begun, both with forces massed on the ground and, and uh, air power uh, just outside Ukraine, uh, there, there, there's talk of a, of a Ukrainian counteroffensive coming, perhaps in the south. One argument for a strategic pullback in the Bakhmut area is to free up troops that would be available for. A much more strategically important fight. So that's how I'd sum it huh. up, Robert. Um, the, the the stalemate grinding uh, is is a little huh. more fluid now, uh, but I think you know we'll just have to wait for the next yeah. week or two, uh, which could see real changes.
1: Something very interesting in your reporting was that while the war in Ukraine is is on the one hand it seems sometimes to be a a throwback to World War One style trench warfare, there's very much a twenty first century side to the Ukrainian. Uh, effort. And uh, it seems like they are out-teching the Russians. Do
2: do, do I have that right? They, they are extraordinarily out-teching the Russians. The subject of my uh, reporting in December from Ukraine was what we call the algorithm war. And the, the United States and its NATO partners have provided Ukraine with um, what amounts to uh, an electronic battlefield in terms of the ability to analyze intelligence immediately update it uh, and then use it for for targeting purposes the russians are, are facing a level of mastery of this electronic battlefield that i don't think any adversary has ever seen uh, i think the reason that people were comfortable with me writing about about this Uh, is that uh, there's an important deterrent value in people understanding what the United States can do uh, with satellites, our own national uh, intelligence satellites, but also the the, the thousands of commercial satellites that now ring the planet. You can dial up from Ukraine, commercial satellite imagery of Bakhmut, which I did when I was there, or Kherson or anywhere else, you want more satellites, you dial dial in greater coverage from these you know the 2500 starlink satellites fly fly around around the world constantly. So um, the United States has has mastered the ability to use these tools. The Russians have tried and have failed. and this is important, not simply in Ukraine, but as I wrote in the piece, if the Chinese are contemplating an invasion of Taiwan, they had to look at this technology and think twice because it's gonna be harder than they realize.
1: David, you interviewed the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken uh, recently. And and one thing that that I found striking in your account of the interview was that uh, you wrote that both uh, American and Ukrainian uh, officials uh, tend to regard, they may not say this uh, very, very loudly in public, but they seem to regard retaking Crimea by force as as probably uh, uh, beyond what Ukraine can get done militarily in this warfare. So
2: that isn't said out loud, uh, even by U.S. officials, uh, except for General Milley, who says it uh, pretty, pretty frequently. Um, but uh, I, I do hear that uh, said often it's uh, to me the the point that um sensible officials make is that Crimea cannot be a platform for future attacks on Ukraine as it is now whatever its status the reason the russians should agree to to some demilitarized status or limits is is if they don't there's going to be a battle for Crimea which should be a, a horrific one uh, but the political status of the of Crimea may be deferred. There has been discussion between Ukrainian officials and U.S. officials about how, if you ever got to a negotiated settlement, or we're not there yet, but how, if you ever got there, one might think about that. Would you set a date fixed by which the political status would have to be resolved? And the Ukrainians expect that uh, the people of Crimea would want to be part of Ukraine. Uh, but uh I think the military conquest of of Crimea at this point, given the forces that Ukraine has um would be, you know, as we remember the phrase, a bridge too far. I'd be curious what the other panelists think about that, but that's my judgment.
1: as you said, uh, the, the, this is, right now we shouldn't expect negotiations at this moment by by any means Do you get any sense of a time frame from either American or you Ukrainian officials? Do they assume that um, there's another war that there's another another year rather or another two years of uh, so fighting so i
2: think North there's Wars. certainly there's certainly another year of 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 fighting likely um neither um russia nor ukraine is sufficiently exhausted that that they don't believe they could get more on the battlefield than they could get in negotiations uh a year from now uh what That'll look like is hard to predict. One thing I I think we can um, just note uh, is that the the, happily the unity and patience of the NATO alliance in supporting Ukraine remains strong. It's crucial that it remains strong. It's not indefinite. Uh, You know, I hope it would continue into 2024. It'd be a big task for people like Ambassador Taylor. Knows so much about this. But you have to worry that a year from now, people might say, we're running out of ammunition, we're running out of patience, time to get this settled. So I think the year to, for Ukraine to seek the maximum gains possible is this year.
1: David Ignatius, uh, thanks. And stick around for the question and answer session. And uh, Uh, Folks, if you have questions uh, for our panelists, you can submit them using the Q and A button. Our next panelist is William Taylor, who's a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, He's now vice president for Europe and Russia at the United States Institute for Peace. Uh, Ambassador Taylor was a West Pointer uh, who served as a captain and company commander in Vietnam, where he was decorated for his service. Uh, he became a diplomat and served in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, among other posts. Uh, he was ambassador in Kyiv during the uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. Uh, and, and he returned to Ukraine in 2019 as a charge d'affaires, the number two diplomat at the embassy. Bill Taylor, welcome to uh, our discussion. And uh, before I ask you for your thoughts on how the war in Ukraine might end, uh, I, I want to hear from you about how important this question is. that is, uh, what do you say to an American who who wonders uh, why why do I care whether Ukrainians
3: or Russians control a city called Donetsk, several thousand miles away? Robert, this is a very good question. That's an important question. Um, why should we care? Why should we why does it matter to the United States? It matters to us, um in my view, um, because if Russia were to take over Ukraine, that would be the message. That would be the message to the world. That would be the message to other powerful nations that if you have the power, you can take over your neighbor. You can invade your neighbor. <clears throat> the message that that would send um, is that we're back in the jungle. We're back in the laws of the jungle. There's There's no rules any longer if a big nation like Russia can invade a smaller nation uh, like Ukraine and get away with it and have this be allowed have this have this work for the Russians. Uh, that's a terrible message um, and it's a terrible message for our East Durham, East European allies. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the Poles, for the Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, soon the Finns, um, are going to be very concerned that the Russian aggression, uh, the Russian imperial instinct, if you will, will lead to the Russians moving on them after they have succeeded, if they do, um, in Mm -hmm. Ukraine. So it's important that they fail um, in Ukraine. It's important that Ukraine wins, so that our allies, indeed, so our alliance, so the people, the nations that we're obligated to defend mm-hmm. if they're invaded are secure. That's that's really the importance, Robert. So,
1: so then what, what constitutes Ukraine winning? What, what would have to be, what would have to happen uh, for uh, President Zelensky or for that matter, uh, President Biden to say that the Ukrainians defeated the Russians in their effort to occupy
3: them? It's actually very simple. It's very simple. And the Ukrainians have answered this exact question. All they want is for the Russians to get out of their country. Mm-hmm. The Russians invaded, as you've described, on the 24th of, uh, of February. They invaded earlier in 2014, as you've described, into Crimea and Donbass. Um, all the Ukrainians want, all the Ukrainians want to win is for the Russians to get out of their country. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's that simple. But it 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 sounds like from what David was saying
1: about Crimea, for example, that uh, the, the if if there is a resolution of this war a, a year or two years from now, it it might very likely not include the, the the complete and full withdrawal of Russian troops from all of the territory they've they've taken. Would a return to the status quo ante uh, could that qualify as as Ukraine having defended itself against Russia trying to take over the whole country?
3: I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so, Robert. Um, I think that there are principles that we're defending, uh, that indeed the Ukrainians are fighting to defend. And those principles include territorial integrity. That's in the UN Charter. Uh, uh, sovereignty is in the UN Charter. If your, if your territory is intact, Um, uh, if you have sovereignty, you're not invaded by your neighbor. And so if your neighbor invades, they need to get out of your country. Restore Ukrainian territorial integrity. Restore its sovereignty. That's the win. It's not a win if the Russians can claim uh, some part of Ukraine um, as their own, which they've tried to do. That's not a win. Now, let me be clear. uh, And I think the Ukrainians have been clear. They don't say The Ukrainians don't say that they have to take it all back now. They say that they're going to push militarily the Russians out of their country. And they're doing that, as you've described, and as David described. Uh, They pushed real hard this fall and pushed the Russians way back. The Ukrainians want to continue to do that, push them out. However, um, we've all recognized, you've described, and David just described, the difficulty um, that Crimea presents. The Ukrainians won't give up claim to Crimea. They will not give it up. They have said, however, that part of taking back the territory that the Russians have illegally annexed and now occupy, part of that taking back will be done militarily, as they've shown they can do. Part of it, the Ukrainians have said, may be done diplomatically. And that suggests that at some point there could be diplomacy that uh, addresses Crimea. Um so so and it doesn't have to happen all at once. This can happen over time, um I think as David has described. So so the the goal is clear. The goal is clear. Russians out of Ukraine. The time frame, the mechanism, um that's that's to be determined. Uh
1: there's been much talk about uh, German Leopard tanks and US Abrams tanks uh, going to Ukraine. Uh, can those weapons change the, the course of the war any anytime soon in a significant way?
3: Absolutely. They absolutely can. In fact, is I would have a shorter time frame, um op- option, at least an option, the possibility, a scenario, Robert, that I would put to you and, and to David Ignatius and Corey shocking when she comes on. And that is that is exactly what you say. Uh, the leopard tanks. Um, which of which there are thousands uh, in Europe right now. And the Ukrainians don't want all those thousands. The Ukrainians say they need, you know, a couple of hundred. And if they get there and if they get there soon, which is also possible, um, then they can mount an offensive, maybe a counter offensive as David described, but maybe an offensive if they strike first. They can use that capability, the, the capability of the leopards, not just the tanks, though, by the way. It's also the artillery, the long-range artillery, the very precise artillery. And it's also the infantry fighting vehicles, the Bradley fighting vehicles, the strikers that allow them, the Ukrainians to move their troops around the battlefield very quickly. That combination, tanks, artillery, infantry, ideally, <laughs> ideally with aircraft, they could break through the Russian lines. They could break through. The Ukrainians could break through the Russian lines, and that could lead to an early end, an early end uh, to this war. So it's not a year uh, that could uh, that could lead to a war's end in six months.
1: Really? Well, I, I, I want to ask you one more question that draws upon uh, your your military background, uh, also, which is: uh, uh, Does the Russians uh, the Russian army's performance surprise you? Uh, and are its flaws such that uh, they could be corrected by a change of generals
3: and uh, the arrival of new troops? The performance did surprise me, <laughs> surprised a lot of us. I think David said the same thing. Uh, you know, we thought we thought that the Russian army was uh, the second most, second best army um, in the world. Turns out it's the second best army in Ukraine. Um, it turns okay. out that they were much poorly led they were poorly led they were poorly poorly prepared um but the big thing Robert the big problem and this gets to your question can it be fixed the big problem the Russians have is morale mm-hmm. is morale um it's not which general is in charge he's you know Putin has tried several and none has has worked out very well um but morale why is morale the Russian army doesn't know why they're in Ukraine. They've not been given an explanation. Compare that to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians know exactly why they're fighting. They're fighting for their homes, for their communities, for their oblasts. They're fighting for their country, their land. Robert, they're fighting for their existence. This is existential for the Ukrainians. If they lose, if the Ukrainians lose There is no Ukraine. There is no Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They know that. That's why they will win. This is why they will win, Robert, in the end.
1: Well, Ambassador Taylor, stick with us uh, because we'll we'll have the Q&A session uh, in a few minutes after we hear from our third panelist, who is Dr. Corey Shockey, who I hope has joined us. Uh, Dr. Shaki is a senior fellow and director of defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, the Washington-based think tank. Her doctorate in government and politics is from the University of Maryland. Uh, Dr. Shaki has since taught at Maryland, as well as at West Point, at King's College London, uh, and at more universities than I can than I can mention. She has held senior positions at the State Department, the Defense Department, and on the National Security Council. And she was also a foreign policy advisor to John McCain's presidential campaign, uh, as well as being a contributing writer to The Atlantic. Corey Shockey, welcome uh, to uh, our panel, and thanks for Thank taking you. part. Uh, first, let, let me ask you the, uh, the, the sort of the big overall title question, which is, uh, uh, how, do, how do you think the war in Ukraine ends?
4: It ends with military victory by one side or the other. I don't. Sorry, there's an ambulance going by outside. Seems appropriate, given the sponsor of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's fashionable to say that military force can't solve problems. But in fact, only military force is going to solve this problem, in addition to the reasons that both David and Bill gave for why Ukraine cannot settle for Russia continuing to hold its territory and its people is the nature of Russian occupation, the war crimes, the separation of 6,000 children to be spirited out of the country to Russian families, that it's it cannot be tolerable for a political leader, President Zelensky or anybody else to accept those terms of an outcome. And so, and the Russians don't wanna negotiate because they still think they can terrorize the Ukrainians into submission. So what is gonna solve this question is performance on the battlefield. I think I am even more bullish than Ambassador Taylor is on Ukrainian prospects. What it looks like to me is the sand is running through the hourglass for the Russians. That in order to, you know, once they realized their war plan was unsuccessful and their military, 80% of their army was sent into Ukraine at the start of the war, was inadequate to the task of achieving their political objectives. They tried to call up a half million additional Russian soldiers. They succeeded in only getting 265,000 and a million Russians fled the country. That's a cost exchange ratio that's actually not gonna make their war effort sustainable. Whereas what Ukraine is looking at is increasing training, support, weapons, financial support from other free societies. So I do think Ukraine's gonna be able to muster an offensive that knocks Russia out of its defensive positions, both in the Donbass and in Crimea. Before their twenty twenty three is out.
1: Well, you're definitely the most bullish member of the panel, and in, in, in that case, well, you, you 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 would not imagine that this could be a, a Korea like situation where uh, this could be a conflict that you know might go on for decades without a formal resolution. No, no,
4: no. I don't think so. I don't think Ukrainians will stand for it. And I think, as Ambassador Taylor said, any Ukrainian territory that Russia continues to hold. Uh, will continue to be contested.
1: I heard you saying recently that uh, Vladimir Putin might find it less humiliating to lose a war to NATO uh, than to lose a war to Ukraine. Uh, And that that distinction that you raised brought uh, to mind for me the argument of the writer Christopher Caldwell, who wrote a provocative article on that. Washington Post a while ago that I want to ask you about. Here's all Caldwell's article, his argument. He says that with the commitment of uh, German and American tanks, the U.S. is, and I'm quoting from him now, uh, the U.S. is replacing Ukraine as Russia's main battlefield adversary. With whom is Russia at war, Ukraine or the United States? It's essentially an argument against what he says as as escalation.
4: That's such nonsense. you know, Russia is losing a war against the Ukrainian military. It would lose a war against the Polish military, the German military, the Dutch military, the British military, and most definitely the American military. But President Biden's concern about potential for escalation has what's led to a slow incremental increase in assistance to Ukraine. Um, And we are We are arming one party to a conflict. That's certainly true um, because there's a good guy and a bad guy in this conflict. But that is wholly different than the United States going to war against Russia, which the president has been at pains to make clear we are not
1: and and you faulted the president for for speaking uh, and it and it also involved the the venue where he was speaking with democratic donors i believe about the fear of escalation in ukraine we how 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 can we ignore the fact that uh, russia has a nuclear arsenal ukraine negotiated away what would have been a huge nuclear arsenal if they'd kept what had been there during soviet times uh, and uh, we we certainly don't want to see uh, Russia use a tactical, a tactical nuclear weapon. How 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 should the president play that in a way that doesn't contribute to the deterrent force that nuclear weapons have?
4: So it is responsible of the president to be concerned about the potential for escalation, mm. either what the military calls horizontal escalation, expanding the war to Poland or Romania or other NATO countries, or vertical escalation, which is going from conventional to nuclear use. Um, But the likelihood of Russia attacking the United States is extraordinarily small. And the way the president talks about it, uh, you know, his saying how worried he is about the potential for World War III or um, concern about Russia, you know, we need to leave Russia and exit with honor. Those things actually encourage Russian nuclear blackmail. They encourage nuclear proliferation to other countries because what it is suggesting is you can prevent the United States from doing what's in its interests if you threaten a very low probability outcome, which the United States is the country that's in a strong position to counter, um, you know, the way the president talks about it, you would think we were the weak party in this negotiation, as opposed to the strongest and safest party. He keeps conveying what we won't do, what we won't provide to Ukraine. And that gives russia encouragement that they can establish a ceiling on our assistance and continue to fight and i think that's a strategic error
1: well we'll we'll talk about that further with our other uh, panelists shortly but, but um, do you believe that the uh, uh the kind of ukrainian victory that you that you can imagine would, in fact, alter, say, the, the calculations of, say, the Chinese about about ta- Taiwan? Uh, or are the situations simply too different for there to be a knock-on effect from uh, the outcome in Ukraine and uh, policies toward uh, 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 that are made in Beijing?
4: You know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. It seems to me that the lessons I wish the Chinese were learning were the willingness of free societies to band together and assist the good guys to uphold an international order where states have rights and people have rights and changes to existing borders only occur by consent of both parties um that the united states military for only 4% of our defense budget this year is arming the ukrainians to destroy the russian army and that Uh, What the Russians are attempting to do is extraordinarily difficult, and it's hard to tell who's good at it before you fight an army. So I wish that's what the Chinese were Mm -hmm. learning. What I fear they're learning are we're letting lots of countries get around the um, sanctions on Russia, that we are so fearful of being involved in the war ourselves, we won't send our own troops, and we're very hesitant and slow in the aid we send I think it's too soon to tell what the Chinese right. or other aggressors might be learning.
1: It's the question that that occurs to me, and I'm just curious what what do you think about it. Is that if I I, I try to see the world as uh, uh, Xi Jinping might, and um, I would see my country as one that's gotten really good at manufacturing over the past uh, couple of decades and uh, knows how to make things, maybe even military things. Russia remains an extractive economy that uh, still pumps and and mines and and, and farms, uh, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised that their trucks break down all the time. They, they, uh, in 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 the Soviet Union, that was no surprise. Uh, I, I wonder if China sees itself as being in the same situation as as Russia, or being a qualitatively different economy and military.
4: What I notice about what the Chinese leadership says is that they're actually incredibly racist and condescending Mm -hmm. about other societies. They think they're different and better. Mm -hmm. Um, And they may be right, uh, but I do do agree with your judgment that they are quite confident that they are different and better than the Russians, than us, than others.
1: How important is it uh, that uh, Ukraine at the end of this war either be A part of NATO, or they have a formal relationship with NATO?
4: I think it's very important. You know, we committed to the sovereignty and security of Ukraine in the 1995 Budapest Memorandum. The British, the United States, and Russia committed to Ukraine's security and sovereignty if they would give up their nuclear weapons none of those three countries have honored that pledge the only way to reliably commit the united states to the defense of another country is a defense treaty with consent to ratification by the united states senate and i think anything short of that the ukrainians won't trust and actually shouldn't trust
1: yes they've had they've had declarations by the soviet by russia rather uh in in uh, past years and um uh, I, I can't imagine that another one would have uh, would enjoy great credibility in um, in kyiv uh do you think nato is ready to embrace uh ukraine as a country which if if attacked by by russia once again or harassed in the east or whatever it might be uh would would receive um uh military support a- a- actual military presence in ukraine
4: yeah. I think so NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said yesterday that NATO's beginning the conversation about that. And it's a conversation that's going to take a fair amount of time and a lot of public debate in all 30 NATO countries. And it should, right? Because it's a sacred obligation coming to the defense of another country and saying that an attack on someone else will be treated its the same as an attack on your own country. Um, Moreover, there are standards for admission to NATO. No contested borders, civilian control of the military, a public defense budget, um, and uh, anti-corruption measures that Ukraine is going to have to, after it wins this war, give the NATO countries confidence that it is abiding by, making progress towards. It will take a while, but yes, I do actually think that what Ukraine has demonstrated in their stalwart defense of their own country is what a fabulous addition they would be to the NATO family and how much safer the rest of us would be by adding Ukraine's people, Ukraine's military and Ukraine's territory into the NATO bargain.
1: Uh, Corey Shockey, thanks. Uh, And I'm going to call back our other panelists as well, David Ignatius and and Bill Taylor. Uh, I'd like to see uh, everyone now. And I'd like to hear, first of all, just briefly, a minute or two at most, uh, what you have to say about what you've heard from your fellow panelists, uh, starting with David Ignatius. David?
2: Well, it's wonderful to to hear both um, uh, Bill Taylor and Corey Shockey, who I I respect, really leading uh, thinkers on this. Um, I think um, the, the question of what victory looks like um, is a complicated one. I think Ambassador Taylor um, made reference to that. Um, President Biden has said that he believes that this war will should end in a negotiated settlement. Uh, and I think that that President Biden is is probably right in that he argues that we should, we need to do everything we can to give Ukraine the maximum leverage. Ukraine wants uh, to have all Russian ter- troops out of its territory, as Bill Taylor said. I, I hope that's that's possible. Um, but I, I think um, the idea of unconditional victory. Unconditional surrender by Russia, the sort that Nazi Germany and uh, and, uh, and Japan made in 1945 is unrealistic. Uh, un- unconditional surrender by a nuclear country is, uh, I don't think is in prospect. So uh, short of unconditional surrender, you're talking about a negotiated settlement. Um, on the question of escalation, um, I, I think, Koishaki was right to credit President Biden for for thinking carefully about the commitments the United States makes and the need to avoid World War III. She's more critical than I would be uh, about um, about the way he's exercised restraint. I'm struck by how Biden, starting from this base of we're not going to have World War III, you know, has has consistently added the, the, the weapons that Ukraine needs and Ukraine's success on the battlefield is a measure of America's strong support, not simply in providing weapons, but but in organizing this coalition. Without American leadership, the coalition that is backing Ukraine so vigorously wouldn't exist. So you know, I, I I I credit that. I think we are entering now a crucial phase of the war, and I, I think that Corey Shaki and Bill Taylor uh, would would argue, and I would join them in saying that we may need to step up the level of our assistance. This year may may shape the balance of the, of the conflict, and it's crucial that Putin mm-hmm. fail. Uh, and I just I note a final word. We've talked, as as we often do in these discussions, about how poorly the Russian military has done. But whenever I talk to Ukrainian commanders in Ukraine, I I hear genuine concern about Russian reserves of manpower. These may be untrained troops. Sometimes they may be convicts fighting with the Wagner militia. But wave after wave, as people say, at some point, mass begins to equal Real power, and I, I think the Ukrainians are concerned about about the, the Russians continuing to to press them. So I think we need to think about ways we augment Ukrainian power as they face this continuing Russian onslaught attempt to break through.
1: Certainly, a lot of history to Russia using the, the numbers of its of its uh, troops as it's uh, as as what it builds its strategy around, its tactics around. Uh, Bill Taylor, thoughts about what you've heard from your fellow panelists.
3: So, yeah, I I, uh, I certainly agree with, with Kory Shaki um, when she says that we need to provide more weapons and and not just more weapons, um, uh, but heavier, longer range um, and in volumes that allow the Ukrainians to do what we have talked about doing, that is break through. Uh, break through the Russian lines. Um, uh you know, we saw this, Robert. we saw this route of Russian troops uh, up in Kharkiv um where where Russian troops panicked. Um, not well trained. um uh, they panicked. they dropped their <laughs> got out of their tanks and went back um, back to, to got bicycles uh you got, mm-hmm. heading back to uh back to the border. Uh, so we know it can happen. Um, what the Ukrainians need, um, we've talked about. I mean, they need the ability to to uh, uh, to mount this offensive uh, and to do it soon. Um, do it soon, because Corey's right. I mean, the current uh, level of mobilization um, that Putin has tried to uh, bring about. Has, has not succeeded. I mean, he's, he's been able to scrape the barrel, but, uh, and, he, and he's got 140 million Russians and there are less than 40 million mm-hmm. Ukrainians. So the, the numbers do speak. There's no doubt about that, which means that the Ukrainians need to move now. The, the, the Ukrainians need to move now so that um, the Russians don't have the time. Um, Ukraine needs to take the time away from the Russians, and they can they can do that. So I think that's right. And on the NATO question, mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um, uh, NATO would be much stronger with Ukraine um, in it, um, and it will take time. It will take time. Uh, it turns out, by the way, that uh, there's no prohibition in the Get
1: in the treaty. This is something that you you I, I learned from you the other day. Corey, you mentioned uh, uh, that NATO won't admit a member with contested uh, uh, borders. Not so, you say.
3: Not so. Well, and, and we know this because look at East Germany, West Germany. West Germany was a member of NATO in very good standing. Um, and East Germany was dominated by. And that border was, uh, you know, uh, not militarily contested, but contested. You know, and it's, it's not in the treaty. Uh, there is, Corey's exactly right. There is a there's a NATO paper. There's a NATO policy. There's, there's not in law anywhere in the treaty anywhere, that says they shouldn't have border disputes. But but nonetheless, Ukraine could definitely join. They won't join during the war. That's clear. There's not mm-hmm. the war will have to end. Corey also is right when she says after the victory. It's not after the war, it's after the victory. After the victory, then there can be movement um, on the on part of both. NATO to have this conversation, and on the part of Ukraine to get ready to, to join. So I, I think that's an important one because Ukraine needs security after the victory. If no matter how this ends, um, and I think it will end soon, sooner um, um, than than David does. Uh, but however it ends, Ukraine, the the Russians will be back. They won't give up on trying to dominate Ukraine, uh, and so they need security either of NATO or they need like we've given Israel um uh, the ability the ability to defend themselves to deter another attack by having the best weapons in the region. Uh, and Corey Shaki uh, uh, comments on Maybe what you've
4: Maybe just two points to add to the very smart things already said by David and Bill. And one is about uh, mass. I think we need to be careful not to mythologize the Russian willingness to kill a bunch of Russians to achieve their objectives. Um, The most interesting thing I learned when I was in Kyiv in September was the Ukrainian military expressing their mystification that the Russians had no capacity to do reconnaissance. Right? They had no equivalent of cavalry. They had no ability to figure out where the Ukrainian units were. Mm-hmm. And what you can see Russia doing now with these human waves of troops is they still don't have reconnaissance. What they are doing is using these prisoners or poorly trained troops to figure out where the Ukrainian units are and then using artillery to strike those units. Mm -hmm. Um, The Wagner group is actually now failing to be able to recruit prisoners out of prisons because the word has filtered back that only 20% of them have survived their experience in Ukraine. So, So it's not clear to me that mass is gonna work in the way This isn't the battle of Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing I would say is about escalation. Uh, I think we actually need to brace ourselves that the risk of escalation is going to increase substantially as Ukraine wins this war. Russia is going to get more desperate. My nightmare is Vladimir Putin concluding that as the Russian army gets pushed off of Ukrainian territory to have a nuclear strike on Kyiv, to be able to try and claim that they achieved the regime change they went there to effect, and therefore, that's why the army's coming home. Again, what I was struck by talking to Ukrainians in the fall was when I asked, how nervous are you? How are you thinking about this issue? To a person, civil society, business people, Mm -hmm. government people's response was, it will not change the outcome of the war. It will simply increase the cost. And we ought actually to be as brave in facing this risk as Ukrainians, who are the direct people threatened by it, are being.
1: Let me uh, put a question that one of our uh, attendees, an anonymous one, has submitted, which is uh, this person writes, given that Putin seems to have staked his reputation uh, and his life, I would say, on the outcome of the war, the questioner writes, "Uh, what do you think he will do if it becomes clear even to him that he is losing the war? Well, Corey Shack, you've just given us the worst uh, possible, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, course he could take if he's convinced of that, which would be to a, a tactical nuke in spite of, for, for for spite what 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 else what would um can Vladimir Putin Bill teller? do you think he can survive a uh, 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 an undisputed defeat in in Ukraine can in 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 power
3: I think it's possible Robert I think he, pro- he, he it's possible uh, I don't think this is existential for him mm-hmm. um it, it may be it may be that if he loses as we both as Corey and I both projected, um uh that he's out of power one way or the other um that's that is possible it doesn't have to be uh you know he's got he you know he's got ways to stay in power and this is not existential to Russia this is existential to Ukraine it's not existential to Russia uh, it, it, we don't know uh, what would happen in the Kremlin if he lost um maybe he could tough it out um I I uh I share Corey's nightmare i think it's unlike very unlikely um uh, uh i think there will there could be people in the chain, in the russian chain of command who might say no uh in in that time so uh i think it's very very unlikely but he yeah he could stick it out and uh,
1: david ignatius in your in your piece about uh, your interview with secretary of state uh you uh, you you remarked that the russians seem to be holding back a certain amount of uh, not just nuclear weaponry but other sophisticated weaponry on the assumption that that and i believe blinken told you the false assumption that there's a war to come between russia and nato uh, or that they that russia must be prepared for a war with nato uh it, it, do, do you do you foresee uh, uh do do you think that that's the way putin sees this as a uh, you know this is just the 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 spanish civil war the real the real thing happens next you know
2: well, he should be concerned about, about that. Um, uh, he has enormous uh, American and NATO firepower surrounding him with the addition of a likely addition of Finland and Sweden to NATO. Um, he has a kind of nightmare scenario for a man who, who thought he'd redraw the map of security map of Europe in his favor. He's he's getting the, the opposite. So... Uh, I think he he is holding some forces in reserve. Obviously, st- strategic forces. Um, I, I've been struck whether it's incapacity or something else that there has not been the kind of massive strategic bombing uh, of of Kiev that the that the Russians certainly would be capable of. Um, uh, what is he holding that in, in reserve for? There's not been the. Uh, as strong an effort to decapitate the leadership you know, if you visit kyiv if you go to the presidential administration it's sandbag but it's it's you know it could be under fire daily in a way that it's it's not so i just want to briefly make a comment about what both um, Corey and and bill taylor have have, have mentioned about ukraine's future in, in nato um I, I think that that is um to be uh shaped in discussions um Uh, Once the war is over with the Ukrainian victory, I hope, I hope you're right, Um, but uh, in, in the future, but what's crucial for the immediate future before this NATO accession happens is Ukraine's ability to, to deter any future Russian attack, any Russian attempt to, to re-resume the war, to 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 fight back and 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 retake what they what they f- feel they lost. And that requires um Ukraine to have a level of of weapons, you know, modern uh, fighters, for example, um, you know, a full complement of uh, uh, t- tanks, artilleries, long-range rockets. And um, that should be done long before Ukraine is a member of NATO. NATO is about the guarantee that we will go to war with our troops to, to protect them. But short of that, giving them much stronger firepower for to prevent any next time, I think, is crucial. And I, I hope that starts right away.
1: I'd like to ask the three of you uh, who've been pretty relatively uh, hopeful to to extremely bullish about Ukraine's uh, prospects and the war uh, to think worst case for a moment here, which is uh, uh, the United States and our allies are in pretty deep in supporting the Ukrainian uh, forces by arming them and by training them. Uh, imagine for a moment that things don't go well uh, that that Russians actually uh Either start uh, bombing Kyiv and, and other cities with with more powerful uh, ordnance, or or uh, uh, if something in the battlefield changes. Uh, what happens if 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 the Ukrainian army were to be in retreat and appear to be in 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 weak shape? Does the U.S. threaten Russia? Does it uh, go to the United Nations? What what's our fallback in case? This doesn't turn into a, a Ukrainian battlefield victory, or, or or is even thinking the thought uh uh, uh you know, demoralizing. Corey Shaki, what 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 should we be thinking? Um,
4: I think you should always think about bad outcomes, right? Any good strategist is always worried a trapdoor is gonna open underneath them. And that's how you shape events so that it doesn't. Um I I think if the Ukrainian military were to break, which again, I do not think uh, likely. I think what you would see is an insurgency against Russian occupation that would bleed the Russian forces terribly and would make control of the country um, impossible. So uh, while that is happening, I think the Biden administration would dramatically ramp up sanctions on Russia. Uh, They would ramp up political pressure on Russia. Um, But again, military force is what's gonna solve this problem one way or another. And I think what was for me so um, illuminating about the NATO debate about providing tanks is that felt to me like the moment that Aristotle talks about as an anagnorisis, right? The moment of realization that we actually weren't going to let Ukraine lose this, mm-hmm. that we were going to provide what it would take, even if it means you reconstitute the Ukrainian army in Poland and Romania and arm it for recovering their country. I think we're in for all of that. Uh, that is, we have committed for all of that at this point.
1: Bill Taylor, uh, what, what what do you think when you think the worst case here?
3: So I I would agree with Corey, um, and um, I would reinforce the point that the Ukrainians will fight. They will fight. They will continue to fight. I mean, the, the scenario you described, Robert, um, of the Ukrainian military breaking, I'm not sure what that looks like. But what I do know um, is that they even if they fall back. Um, even if they retreat in certain places, or or they they retreat to the other side of the river that kind of goes down kind of the middle of the country, <clears throat> they will continue to fight, uh, and we will continue to support them. Um, we will continue to support the government um, of of Ukraine. Um, that that kind of support, I think, would continue across the borders, um, and I, and I think in the end. With the other pressures that Corey just described, the political, economic, uh, in the end, um, Ukraine, Ukraine will win that scenario as well. And David Ignatius, your uh,
1: your your plan for the worst case?
2: So uh, I um, think in the in the worst case of a a total Russian breakout, uh, we would revert as as both Bill and Corey have suggested to what was. Uh, originally, our strategy was the expectation, I think, um, uh, within the Biden administration was that um, Russia might quickly appear to gain control in Ukraine, take Kyiv, uh, uh, take over the leadership, install some puppet. But the a, a porcupine strategy, an indigestible Ukraine, where people fought every inch of territory. Uh, Russian occupation was intolerable. a cost daily would would, would increase. Uh, you know that 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 was the way we were thinking the, the the war might go. That that would that would come back into play. I don't think that's that's going to happen. Uh, just to introduce one final uh, quick thought. So um, the worst happening I think would be for Russia Russia to escalate vertically. I don't think them yeah they're not going to get the key but but they but they but they could use tactical nuclear weapons and what scares me is from what little administration has said obviously they leave their options open but you get the sense that our reaction might not be to escalate into uh, nuclear space but to respond um, with very powerful tactical uh, conventional weapons not, not nuclear uh, and the problem with that is that the nuke, the red line against use of nuclear weapons, will have been breached, and I think it's very much in our interest that this war not get to that point. It's it's crucial. The world, if a world where nuclear weapons are used, is a different world. So I I leave that to others and and there.
1: But are you saying that the the deterrent to to Russia doing that should be uh, the threat that. Uh nuclear weapons will be used against you, uh, Mr. Putin? I I actually,
2: actually, I I don't think that, I I think we should do everything we can um, to prevent Russia from escalating. So I think, Getting the Germans to speak to Xi Jinping, and Xi Jinping to convey to Putin powerfully, mm-hmm. we don't believe that nuclear weapons are appropriate. I think that was really important. I think the Indians doing that was important. I think you know consensus about that, that puts limits bounds on that, is uh, powerfully in our in our national interest.
1: Well, I'm sorry after such an upbeat discussion to have brought us uh, to 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 the end of this uh, this most bleak of uh, uh, consideration of the future, but but thanks to all of you uh, for taking part. Uh, Ambassador William Taylor, Dr. Corey Shaki, David Ignatius, uh, thanks for being our panel today. Uh, also many thanks to Joshua Plout and Rony Givaliano and uh, Adrian Kiss of uh, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, which produces Global Connections, uh, and also to our technical director, Bobby Grandone. Our program sponsor is the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. It's a 501c3, a national charitable organization which represents in the United States, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petach Tikva, which is in greater Tel Aviv. The website for the group is www.afrmc.org. Join us next month, March 8th, for the future of U.S.-Israel relations with panelists David Makovsky of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Lucy Kurtzer-Ellenbogen of the U.S. Institute for Peace, and former U.S. Ambassador to Israel Martin Indyk. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Normal. See you next month. Stay healthy and stay safe.